Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com slash AMA. That was the reason why we put a line in the sand to challenge ourselves to design for scale, to design for equity, and to design for agility. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. This episode, number 299, features a conversation with Von Tone Quinlevin. In 1975, her family escaped from the Vietnam War and was able to start again in the U.S., thanks in large part to the opportunities opened up by education. Her past has made Von passionate about paying it forward now. She's a workforce development expert and CEO of Futuro Health, a nonprofit launched in 2020 with the mission of improving the health and wealth of communities by growing the largest network of credentialed allied healthcare workers in the nation. Allied healthcare covers a wide range of roles from medical assistants, vocational nurses, and care coordinators to help desk support specialists and ambulance drivers. Most allied health roles don't require a bachelor's degree and can be trained with industry credentials, which is precisely what Futuro Health is doing. Vaughn has lots to say about partnering effectively and being attuned to societal and workforce needs that we think will be helpful to leading learning podcast listeners. She and Salisa discuss addressing situations that require more than incremental solutions, the clarity provided by having clearly articulated goals, and the essential role an ecosystem of partners plays in delivering scale, equity, and agility. Salisa and Vaughn spoke in March 2022. Uh, my expertise is, is workforce development. I did it in the private sector where I headed up workforce development for a company of 20,000, bringing them from having no opinion in workforce development to becoming a nationally recognized best practice. And then I was appointed by the California's Governor Brown to be the executive vice chancellor driving the workforce mission of the California Community Colleges, which is really the the, sort of the higher education system that is the workforce engine for the state and brought workforce from being an afterthought to actually be becoming a policy priority and growing public investment in career education programs from a hundred million to over a billion dollars under the two terms that I I served. After that, that role, I was approached by uh, Kaiser Permanente and a union called SEIU UHW, and and they had this dilemma, which is, you know, when you're looking at numbers as big as 500,000 skilled workers needed, and you want this workforce to reflect the communities that are being served, because especially in healthcare, health outcomes correlate to whether or not you have culturally competent workers. It's a DI dilemma in addition to a volume of talent that is needed, they realized that incremental solutions really can't tackle that 
type of a shortage. And it would take a different strategy. So one strategy I had at my disposal was, you know, we could become an accredited institution. And we decided that was too slow, couldn't scale and couldn't produce at the volume. So instead, the, the design of Futuro Health as a nonprofit is to build an ecosystem of partners, each partner doing what they do best. And because of that, we're able to go from zero students two years ago to now over serving 5,000 adults towards their healthcare credential with the type of diversity that everybody salivates for. So 80% diverse, over 51% bilingual, 73% female. So it's a very diverse adult population that would not otherwise be moving into healthcare. And we're, we're able to bring them into education and training at a moment in time when nationally, there's a severe decline in enrollment across all systems, the four-year system, and dramatically with the community college system, which has traditionally been the, the engine for training workforce. Well, I saw that Futura Health has a articulated a goal, a goal to graduate 10,000 new licensed and or credentialed workers by 2024 to meet the nation's critical demand for healthcare workers. And I think I have a two-part question about that goal. A, how did you come up with that goal? And then B, what value do you see in having articulated that goal and publicly committed to it? We wanted to put a line in the sand because our our challenge was was scale, right? Given the magnitude of the labor shortage, the worker shortage, how do we design education journey that works for diverse adults, but do so at scale? And the dilemma that I saw when I was with the community college system was that there were classrooms that could produce medical assistance, but it was, here's 25, here's another 25, here's another 25. I mean, that's a lot of 25s that you have to add up in order to start breaking the thousands. So when I share with you that we've gone from zero to over 5,000 adults in just the two years, that means we're practicing scale. We have to design workflows and a set of uh, partners that could handle that kind of scale and provide also the, the live touches that are so important, especially to diverse student, even as we operate at scale. So that was the reason why we put a line in the sand to challenge ourselves to design for scale, to design for equity, and to design for agility because things are shifting so fast in healthcare. As you can imagine, like the, uh, we were born three months before the pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, in March, all of a sudden, healthcare cut over to telehealth, which was an entirely new way of interacting with patients. With the advent of telehealth adoption, it went from maybe in the teens to the 80% adoption rate, and no one expects it to go backwards. So all of a sudden, instead of physical rooming, where you come in and someone's talking to you and, and does you know the intake that you normally experience you know, for your appointment, it became virtual rooming which meant that there were technology issues that patients may face before they could interact with the healthcare provider. Not to mention that there's different norms for interacting, you know, online versus in person. One of the funny stories that, that I hear is, you know, for doctors, for example, it's the moment when they're about to leave the room that the patient comes up with the, oh, I just have one more question or one more issue I want to talk to you about. 
Now, if you don't have those physical cues anymore, how does that happen in virtual rooming, right? So lots of skill sets change and change very dramatically. And so having a system, an ecosystem that could deliver on scale, equity, and agility was really our goal. And we uh, were so proud that we've been able to figure out that model. Why I hear in what you were saying that having that really clear goal has helped keep you focused, right? That you're really dealing very directly with these challenges of scale, equity, and agility, if you're going to be able to achieve that goal of 10,000 new licensed and or credentialed workers by 2024. Do you think that other organizations would benefit from being that specific and explicit and possibly even public about their goals? Well, I've always uh, found it helpful to you know, put a line in the sand as a challenge, not only to my own organization, but others like my board members, or I, I would imagine many of your organizations have investors as well. And so, you know, that, that also brings in support as well as focus, you know, what's within the lines and what's outside of the line. So I, I would encourage everybody to have the North Star and to be able to have a quantifiable North Star. We're grateful to Bench Prep for sponsoring the Leading Learning Podcast. Bench Prep is an award-winning learning platform purpose-built to help learners feel confident and prepared to take difficult entrance, certification, and licensing tests by delivering an intuitive, efficient, and engaging study experience. Bench Prep helps you accelerate test prep revenue growth by offering the tools you need to create market-ready products and data to improve your content and understand learner behavior. Many of the world's leading associations, credentialing bodies, test providers, and training companies trust Bench Prep to power their online study programs, including ACT, the Association of American Medical Colleges, CFA Institute, CompTIA, GMAC, McGraw-Hill Education, AccessLex, and more. More than 8 million learners have used Bench Prep to attain academic and professional success. To discover more, visit leadinglearning.com slash benchprep. Now, back to Vaughn and Salisa. I feel like workforce development is one of those words that gets used frequently, but it's not always clear that people using the term mean the same thing by it. So I would love to get your definition of workforce development, how you describe that work. Every employer's goal is to have the right person with the right skills at the right time, right? That's what we all want when we're trying to hire. So if we can post a job, onto you know LinkedIn or Indeed and find a person, then there's no need to do workforce development. Basically, we can transact. But if we're not finding the talent, you know, the right people with the right skills at the right time, then it's time to do some intentional work, which is called workforce development. And so right now, for example, there's a lot of uh, shortages that employers are reporting. It's more acute in healthcare, of course, but it's pervasive, right, across all industries. And so one of the mistakes that or misconceptions that employers have is that they have to do this workforce development on their own in a silo. There's actually great value in partnering And let me share with you the three-legged stool of workforce development where each party does what it does best. So as I mentioned, there's a three-legged stool. Let's start with the first leg. The leg is the employer leg, right? The role of the employer is not to do everything. 
The role of the employer is to articulate what they need, basically define the specs of this, you know, what it means to have the right person with the right skills at the right time. That includes your DEI goals, right? And then hire, right? Or create internships so that you can eventually hire. So that's the role of the employer. The second leg is a set of community organization or public workforce agencies. There's an infrastructure in every state because of the feds fund, fund these federal agencies called workforce development boards. What they do best is go out into the community in order to reach more deeply, to expand and bring in the talent pool. And they also serve two very important functions in addition to outreach. So they can screen against your criteria and they can case manage these candidates through what the education process. I remember a case manager who, what she did was she went out, she pre-interviewed, she had put all the candidates when I was with my company, energy company, everybody was screened on the drug test, everybody was screened on, on their background check. They were also asked to climb these poles. These were, were energy jobs that required you to climb and not have fear of heights. So she was able to screen out candidates. And then she also tested them for a baseline level of reading and math and created a shortlist of 27 candidates. We looked at them, created the shortlist of 25, and then those 25 went into the next step, which is the third leg of the stool, the education and training. So the education and training partner, what it does best is to close the gap between what employers want and where the candidates are. And it, it could be the range. It could be for example, what we found was that many of the, these good candidates were falling down on spatial reasoning, and that was the portion where they were failing the pre-employment test. And so part of that, the curriculum that they created was modules on how to do, you know, like moving off all the blocks to practice the spatial reasoning. The other thing that many of these candidates were not doing not well on is time testing, because it's been a while since many of these candidates had taken time tests. So they needed some practice with that, not different from taking, you know, PSAT or SAT prep. Another one was we needed uh, candidates who were physically fit and so they developed a whole uh, physical regimen that included playing soccer and all sorts of exercises to bring the candidate pool into better shape. And it was then that candidate pool, once they closed the gap, then they went through the same pre-employment tests as everybody else. And what resulted was a more diverse, quality and reliable talent pool that my company can hire from. And prior to that, the company was trying to go out to here, a community-based organization here, community-based organization there, but they could barely get one candidate out of 30. So it was a very frustrating process beforehand, but with this three-legged stool of workforce development, each time they were able to create a reliable, diverse, and quality uh, talent pool from which to hire. You've been involved in workforce development for a long time, so I'm curious to know, have you seen workforce development evolve in your time spent in the field? And if so, you know, what has changed kind of, you know, what are the trends in workforce development, if there are ones? There's been a few changes. One is that I've seen education institutions embrace the employer partnership much more so. And in doing so, they're looking for how to stay relevant and current. And the cycle of curriculum development is, is very challenging. And so, where employers are able to make available, you know, the latest and greatest 
to education institution, I think that has been very helpful. So that you can see that strategy in Grow with Google, you can see it with Amazon Web Services, with IBM, you know, many are helping to grow a relevant talent pool by actually making available these, these resources so that education institutions don't have to guess what is relevant. The other area that I've seen is the realization of corporations that it is in their interest as well, especially from retention, to make training and development, like tuition disbursement, available to their frontline staff at the lower levels. So, you know, it used to be your high potential employees would get all the training resources. But companies ranging from Walmart to Disney to Starbucks have all made tuition disbursement available so that frontline employees have access to you know, building skills and credentials. Sometimes it's related to their work. And for some other companies, as long as they're getting something that is uh, in demand, it doesn't even have to relate to the work that they do on a daily basis. So I think these are all positive signs in the area of workforce development. And credentials, you know, play a big part in workforce development. You know, they're a way for individuals to be able to show employers that they have those needed skills. What have you seen work well with credentialing and workforce development? And, you know, I'm thinking, for example, you know, maybe sort of the shorter to attain credentials, maybe even micro-credentials might be more effective or or more cost-effective, at least. But just in general, what do you think tends to work well with credentialing in terms of workforce development? Well, Salisa, you know, if I, if I said to you, hey, you can go get your highest level of education up front, and so you're like, like done by 22, for example, and you never have to do any more skilling for the rest of your life, you would laugh, right? And yet most of our education system is set up that way. So the reality is it's not just like a one-time kind of infusion of education. It's like you should get your highest level of education possible up front. And then you have to have the upgrades throughout. So it's it's no I joke that it's no different from your iPhone. Your technology is getting periodic upgrades, you know, every month or every other month. And so what are we doing as humans to make sure that we get our skills upgrade? Given that and really just the affordability and how fast things are moving, we need skills delivered in shorter bursts. And for many, it's challenging to go the distance in terms of sort of the time it takes to a whole degree. And frankly, by the time you get the degree, the, the skill sets may be out of date. The micro-credentials or shorter to attain credentials are just ways to get those skills upgrade. And uh, I think the challenge for all those who are in the education and training space is we need to make sure that they carry value, especially as financial aid like short-term Pell is associated with them, because we'll go through a cycle where if there's abuse of these short-term credentials, then those public funds will go away. And yet they're so important to adults are not in a mood right now to go find degrees. You can see that in the drop in enrollment numbers, but they are up for skilling up, right, as a way to ensure that they remain relevant. And so offering sort of burst shorter ways to attain those skills in form of these credentials and micro-credentials is very valuable in this labor market. It's also important that for adults, adults don't want to start from scratch. So to the extent that the credentials, the micro-credentials, they stack on top to each other. For example, if you have a project management 
credential, right? Well, what does it take to stack the project management credential to become an AA, like an associate's degree, like construction management credential, right? And then what does it take to go from there to a bachelor? So in healthcare, for example, a certified nursing assistant can stack into a medical assistant, can tack into a licensed vocational nurse that can stack into a registered nurse. So there's these the more that you design stackability, the less cumbersome it is for adults to really build up their skills. That's an interesting point. I've you know thought about stacked credentials many times, but something you just said just really struck me in terms of its valuing the learner's prior knowledge, which we know is an important facet of of adults. They want their existing knowledge and experience to be valued. And so I think what you're saying around stackable credentials, allowing learners to get to kind of bring that prior knowledge with them and then continuing to add to it over time. That that really struck me in, in your response there. Now, I know that partnerships figure very prominently in the work that you're doing at Futura Health. You have this ecosystem of partners. They're right there on, on your website. You make a big deal of them because they are so important to what you're doing. I'm wondering what advice you have for other organizations that are looking to create successful partnerships. What have you found contributing to good partnerships? And or if you have examples of it, maybe what tends not to work when looking for a partner? Yeah, so there's there's private, 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 public, 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 all sorts of types of, of configuration of partnerships that are possible. And I would encourage considering like what problems you can solve through partnerships that you can't do alone, right? And the best kinds of partners are the partners that do what they do best and bring what they do best to the table. And it's not one where you come to the table with your hands out asking for resources, right? It's a one That sounds like a one-way partnership. You have to bring value to the collaboration. And I'll just give you an example. When the pandemic hit, we had to do a pivot. My board asked, you know, the surge, the first COVID surge was going to be arriving in California in roughly two and a half weeks time. And what could we do to help the frontline workers skill up because they completely unprepared for what they needed to do. And on our own, and frankly, none of the parties, Kaiser or Futura Health on our own, could have operated and delivered in that two and a half time frame. But together, we actually came up with a constellation of partners that met that window. So we had one of our education partner raised their hand and said, we'll develop the curriculum, but we need somebody else to host it on the learning management system. Futuro Health said, we'll put in place the learning management system. A third, uh, Kaiser said, we'll curate and make sure that the curriculum is good. And then we had two other parties, the education fund and SEIU UHW say, we'll pull together all the mailing lists so that we can then get the word out that this training is available and design a communication All of that happened in two and a half weeks, and we actually made that window and ended up training over 4,000 healthcare workers, you know, incumbent healthcare workers in 20 states in, you know, after we launched that, that program. So that's the kind of agility that is needed. And it's, it would be very challenging for a single organization to pull that off every single time in every single crisis, right? But in combination, there's some combination within your ecosystem of partners that can 
pull off a solution. And I think that's the benefit of having an ecosystem of partners, other than trying to do it on your own, because there's there's no no organization has all the resources or even the interest or even the competence of competencies to tackle what lies ahead. Well, that's a truly inspiring story of, of partnership doing good in the world. That's impressive. The two and a half weeks, and then to get four thousand trained in twenty states. That's a, a wonderful example of, of partnership at work. You know, one of the things that you have mentioned is the employers and their kind of role in workforce development. When you were talking about the three-leg stool that's involved in workforce development, you know, they were the first leg that you mentioned. I feel like a lot of the learning businesses that I know of sometimes struggle with those connections with employers so that they truly understand the skills that the employers need and what they're looking for in workers. And that's obviously must must have been kind of a nut that you've you've been cracking and have cracked at, at Futura. Do you have any advice around sort of how other organizations can really come to to better understand those employer needs so that they make sure that whatever they're offering in terms of training, education, lifelong learning really aligns with with what those employers need. I actually began documenting the lessons learned. What are the playbooks that work in workforce development? And it's in my book that I just published called Workforce Rx, Agile and Inclusive Strategies for Employers, Educators, and Workers in Unsettled Times. You know, getting the skill sets right is there's sort of a two several subtleties in that, and it's a little bit less of a science. It's a, it's a uh, there's a little bit of an art and science in getting this the skill sets right. Right, yeah. one is listening to the pain points of the employer. Like I, I listened in the book, Dave Mizell, he talked about how what was keeping him up at night was that he had master mechanics who were on the verge of retirement, and he could see it in the horizon, and he didn't know how to replace them, right? Or his pain point was that he had the largest vehicle, a fleet of electric vehicle back at the time when this was brand new, and that the manufacturers were rolling out these vehicles so fast, they didn't roll out the training to accompany the vehicles. And so if his mechanics touched the vehicle without having done the training, they would void the warranty car, which is a complete operational (laughs) dilemma, right? So hearing him talk, you could hear where are his pain points? Is it a pain point that is recurring or is it a one-time pain point? And the other thing you have to assess is what is the timing of that pain point, right? So on the electric vehicle, that is a more current, like within the one-year time frame, like six six months to, to one year, whereas the replacement of the master mechanics that was like the three to five year horizon. So the strategies to put in place were very different. So on the one that had to do with electric vehicle, the strategy that I suggested to him, and this is what we did, was we would select a set of colleges and here you, they could select a set of training partners. But what we wanted to do was, was leverage the public infrastructure in that case. We selected seven community colleges with automotive programs that were closest to what we wanted. And then we had our master mechanic. We got permission from the manufacturer to train those seven colleges on how to work with electric vehicles. And then those seven colleges went on to train 
the 300 mechanics across the company in all different geographies of California. And that was all done within a two month window. But what's more important is now we've fed that curriculum, that knowledge into the public system or into the education institutions. And now those faculty will begin producing mechanics with electric vehicle skills, right? So then industry is not now bearing, sort of dragging and trying to find, you know, again, it's like posting and praying. Industry has now seeded that knowledge into the production, the normal production of students and creating the talent pool with that. These specific examples are always so helpful because, you know, ironically, I think in the specific details, you begin to see the potential for universal application, right? You can imagine someone else doing something very similar where they partner with those academic institutions. And then, like you said, that's seeding the sort of the the future workforce in addition to addressing the specific shorter term need as well. Yes. So Salissa, with with the other case, which was, you know, he had the the master mechanics who were on the verge of retirement. We had very much smaller volume. He was only going to hire like five a year. So he was predicting maybe five, five, five who were going to leave the workforce and how would he replace them? So because this is a much smaller volume, instead of having eight colleges, what we did was we picked one college and we selected 25 mechanics from within our ranks, but also in the ranks of our supply chain, because we weren't the only ones having this issue. So we invited workers from our supply chain to also attend in order to create enough students. And then they attended a summer program. So it was a dedicated program at the end of which our master mechanic gave feedback. So, okay, you five, you've mastered everything. You're eligible for the slots that are coming up, you know, this year. You five, you need to close the gap on this, this, and this. And then here's, you know, so the master mechanic was giving basically an individual development plan to each person. And then, you know, they would then seek out projects on their own in order to kind of fill the gaps and become eligible over time for these master mechanic positions that would eventually open up. And so we were very successful in creating the talent pool that was needed by the company. But it was, again, that was more a scalpel approach compared to the electric vehicle situation. The learners that you work with at Futuro Health are are diverse. And so I would be interested in your thoughts on, you know, what do you see as your role and potentially the role of other learning providers in diversity, equity, and inclusion? So Lisa, there's a lot of conversation and talk about diversity and inclusion. Question is, can it be translated into action? And so I think about the Lego set of services or the set of what must come together as Lego pieces in order for diverse and especially adult diverse candidates to successfully make it through education. And in almost all cases, it's not just the instructional design alone. It's there needs to be a high level of uh, high touch, high high coaching, high navigation, high supports, right? The other element is that there needs to be a confidence building on ramp because many of these adults didn't necessarily have a a great experience in education the first go round. So you know, have some trepidations about re-engaging in education, and yet they need the skills. 
So how do you design for them to successfully on-ramp into education, to test out education, test out education in the online format? Remember, many of the folks didn't experience education online, right? So gain confidence. And then there may be language skills in the way. They're also the biggest thing that we see is that they haven't arranged their life and their family to be supportive of them putting in the time into their studies. And so that ramp is what we've designed into Futuro Health. And that's why so many diverse adults are finding the education journey supportive for them. So I hear in your answer there that a lot of it is really thinking through the the barriers or the issues that your specific audience may be facing and then trying to think through how can you address those. So even if it's in something as sort of sort of technically not related, like confidence, but maybe that is a key ingredient in helping develop these allied healthcare workers so that they can have that successful learning experience. Yes, and I would love to share my fish story because I think it articulates the value of the three-legged stool of workforce development. So when I was at my company, you know, we had made all that effort in, in workforce development. And there was this young man who came in through the training. Oh, we loved him. The supervisors loved him, thought he would be a great fit for the company. So he went through the, the training program, then went through our standard pre-employment test, right? Nothing special. It's like everybody had, was held to the same standard. And he disappeared from the list, the short list on the back end. And because we were in this intentional workforce development program, we asked our community partners, what happened to Aleki? So it turns out that Aleki, when he was 15 years old, went fishing and he caught a fish that was too small and he got a ticket. And as a 15 year old, he did not pay the ticket. Well, the ticket went to court. He did not show up into court. Now Aleki had a felony on his record and did not know. So I mean, what is so tragic is that Aleki was basically barred from probably 80, 90% of the jobs in the utility sector because of this background issue. And he did not know, and no employer was going to take the time to tell him. But in the three-legged stool, if employers, you know, that's not their job to, you know, what they'll do is send out that card, that postcard or that email saying, thank you for your application, you know. We'll let you know if there's another opening, right? So that's all the all the candidates going to hear. On the education side, I mean, they can train a lucky and give him many certificates, many degrees, but he will never pass the, the uh, background check, right? It was the third party of the stool, which is the community organization, the workforce board. That case manager went back, worked with him to expunge the felony from his record. And as an employer, we were able to hire him and it's a happy ending. Great, turned out to be a great fit and a great employee. But again, if we do what we all do best, then we can reach into a deeper, wider, and more diverse talent pool. And none of us have to kind of bear more than we need in terms of the responsibility and the the resourcing. Lantone Quinlivan is CEO of Futuro Health and author of Workforce RX, Agile and Inclusive Strategies for Employers, Educators, and Workers in Unsettled Times. Vaughn also hosts the Workforce RX podcast. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 299, you'll find links to Vaughn's book, the Workforce RX podcast, the Futuro Health website, and Vaughn's profile on LinkedIn. 
In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 299, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. And we'd be grateful if you would subscribe if you haven't yet, as subscriptions give us some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would rate us on Apple Podcasts. Jeff and I personally appreciate the feedback and reviews and ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 299, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.